Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can get on our mailing list, find show notes, transcripts, as well as videos at narrativespodcast.com. Thanks. Well, Aubrey, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? And thanks for having me on the show. I'm doing great. And I really appreciate you coming on. Um, before we get jump into it, could you just give us a brief bio and, and some of the big problems you're working on? Sure, yeah. So I am a biologist. I'm the chief science officer of a nonprofit based in Silicon Valley called Sensory Research Foundation. And what we do is we work on the early stage um, translational research to develop new medicines that will postpone very greatly, we believe, the health problems of late life. We believe that it's possible to repair the various types of molecular and cellular damage that the body accumulates during life and thereby to stop that damage from reaching a level that exceeds what the body is set up to tolerate. That's basically all that we do. But of course, when I say all, what I mean is that's a big job. We have lots of different types of damage that accumulate in the body and any one of them can kill you on its own, uh, more or less on schedule, however well we fix all the others. So this is very much a divide and conquer approach. Um, over the past few years, some of these technologies have moved along far enough to be you know, within striking distance of clinical application, which has allowed them to be picked up by the private sector. Because investors who don't just want to live a long time, they also want to make money. You know, those people are getting interested. And that's enormously important because investors, you know, they tend to write bigger checks than donors do. So the projects end up going faster, which is wonderful. But there are still some projects that are not far enough along to be investable, even in the eyes of the more courageous investors that are interested in early stage, high risk, high reward stuff. So we, as the nonprofit Sense Research Foundation, uh, not in any danger of, you know, declaring victory anytime soon. Got it. I really like that. And did you have like a, a specific aha moment when you realized aging was the big problem that you needed to work on? Or was it kind of a more gradual thing over time? It was pretty much an aha moment. Um, essentially what happened was I was about 30 or so and I had for a couple of years to a biologist. Now, um, for the previous um, probably 15 years, I had, no, I had felt that the right thing for me to do was to dedicate my life to the problem of work. In other words, the fact that, you know, people have to spend so much of their time doing stuff that they would not do unless they were being paid for it. Uh, that's a big problem, I believe, you know, it causes a lot of suffering. But I never thought that it was anywhere near as big a problem as the problem of aging. Far, far bigger, surely. Um, the thing was, though, 
it was a question of where could I make the difference? When I was 15 or so, I started programming and I found that I'm good at it. So I felt, you know, that's where I should be putting my effort into um, artificial intelligence research that will develop software that can automate the tasks that most of us don't want to do. Um, and I was perfectly happy doing that. I was doing well. Um, but then I met and married a biologist, as I mentioned, and gradually over the few years after we married, I began to realize that we were never talking about aging. And I started asking increasingly, you know, strident questions about this and saying, you know, you know, aren't you interested in aging? And she would say, well, no. And I would say, why not? And she would say, well, you know, it's just decay, isn't it? We're not going to understand any fundamental truths about the universe by studying decay. And, um, and I would say, well, maybe that's true, but so what really? Because, you know, it's bad for you. And she would say, well, that's not my problem. And I would say, well, hang on, it kind of is. Um, but that would be about as far as we would get. And pretty rapidly, I began to be aware that the other biologists I was meeting through her felt the same way. So, you know, it did take a little while longer than that for me to really come to terms with this, this revelation, this bombshell that most people actually are perfectly happy with aging, or at least they've made their peace with it. Um, because, you know, it was always so obvious to me that this was a problem that was a medical problem and it could in principle be solved. Um, so eventually I found a way to switch fields and here I am. That's excellent. Do, do you think people have missed aging as a problem because there's a certain amount of fatalism to it that, you know, it's just, it's going to happen. There's nothing we can really do about it. And because you haven't considered there's a possibility we could do something about it. Everyone's just like, Oh, it's natural. It's going to happen. It's nothing to worry about. Well, I mean, let's, um, I, I would say that it goes both ways. It's a bi-directional thing here. It's a kind of feedback loop because Yes, absolutely. People are fatalistic about aging and they don't think that, that, that it's worth trying to do anything about it. But that's because they don't think it's possible to do anything about it. So, uh, you know, it kind of makes sense that if you're, if you're aware of this terrible ghastly thing that's going to happen to you at some point in the relatively distant future, um, and there's absolutely nothing you think you can do about it, then the right thing to do is to trick yourself into pretending that it's some kind of blessing in disguise, right? or at least that it's kind of woven into the fabric of the universe and so be it. Um, you know, because that way you'll be able to put it out of your mind and get on with your miserably short lives and, you know, uh, make the best of it rather than being preoccupied by this thing. And, you know, when people like me, when troublemakers like myself come along and they say, you know, we might be able to do something about this, uh, you know, the big risk is getting your hopes up. And a lot of people just can't cope with that, can't cope with the idea that they might actually decide maybe they'll be able to benefit from all of this. Uh, and then finding, you know, things go a little bit more slowly than they were hoping. And, oh, dear, you know, they're not going to benefit after all. Um, you know, I mean, I, I understand that not everybody can be courageous, but still, I feel, feel that that is fundamentally the reason why everything's been... Um, so slow in terms of public opinion, even as the science is moving forward at an accelerating rate. Definitely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it does seem like the science is accelerating a lot, especially in the last 10 years. You mentioned some of the, you know, there's a lot of commercial efforts now, which is really promising, in my opinion. Um, do you, has it been more difficult or easier than you expected when you first started on the journey? 
or about the same, about like what you expect? Um, well, some parts have been he harder and some parts have been easier. Well, I wouldn't say anything's been easier. Some things have been about as difficult as I expected. Essentially, the um, parts that have been as difficult as I expected have been the science, the actual development of the technology. That's gone pretty much as fast as I would have expected, given the resources, the manpower that has been working on it, which is still inadequate, but was far more inadequate until, let's say, the, the past few years. Um, the part that I was over optimistic about that I thought would go faster was the funding, the persuading the public, especially, you know, a few highly, you know, technologically sophisticated, wealthy people, um, that this was actually something they should prioritize. I was definitely expecting that to go faster, especially starting in 2006, when I did succeed in persuading one such person, Peter Thiel, to come in for a respectable amount of funding of philanthropic support for this work. I thought, you know, he's a really high profile guy. He's got a great reputation. The other billionaires are going to be lining up. It didn't happen. So that was my big case of over optimism. But if we take that out of the equation, if we say, well, okay, you know, have we achieved pretty much the same rate of progress that I would have expected us to achieve given the amount of financial support that has eventually ended up being available, then I would say, yes, we have. We have not hit any new big bad surprises. And that's that's really encouraging to me I, on one level and also discouraging, right? Because it's like it, the problem is is almost the sales angle to convince people that, you know, this is an important problem. It's something we should put resources behind. Well, I um, wouldn't quite put it that way, actually, Will, because the thing is that the more progress you make, the easier that problem gets. So I already alluded to the fact that the past few years have been a you know, night and day change from the previous decade or two that I've been working in this field, in the sense that there is now an investment community, a coterie of wealthy who are willing, who, who, who you know, they'd like not to get sick when they get old, but they'd also really like to make money and the making money part dominates their thinking. Um, but they now think they can make money. The, um, the money is unevenly distributed at this point, but it's a hell of a lot better than when there was no money at all. So in a sense, we're kind of there. We're, we're most of the way there. The, um, you know, the more people get on board with this, get on the train, the better for sure. This certainly applies not only at the level of investors, but also at the level of policymakers and decision makers in government and so on. Uh, and that's very much a work in progress. But the progress, the rate of progress is far better than it was even a couple of years ago. Excellent. Excellent. And, and on the progress front, do you envision that there's going to be one big therapy we find that makes up most of the gains uh, in reversing aging? Or is it going to be a basket of therapies that work on all kinds of different pathways? I'm absolutely certain it's going to be a basket of therapies. The... Um, the whole paradigm of sense that I've been pursuing for the past 20 years, and which remains unequivocally the most promising approach, is intrinsically a divide and conquer approach. It's one in which we enumerate a large number of different types of damage. And then we, you know, we, we, we kind of um, 
cluster those many, many types of damage into a manageable number of categories. The way I do it, it involves seven categories. Different people have come up with different numbers, but it's really just a classification process. The purpose of the classification is to simplify the process of developing damage repair therapies, rejuvenation therapies that eliminate these various types of damage from the body. The um, reason why the classification is possible is because you can do it. That, that like, for example, um, if you've got cells dying and not being automatically replaced by cell division, you can use stem cell therapy to fix that, to put new cells in that will replace the cells that the body is not replacing on its own. And of course, you need slightly different stem cell therapies for different organs and tissues that may be, may be suffering from this problem. But all stem cell therapies have an awful lot in common. So you, once you've got a couple of them working, getting the next one working and the one after that is very much more routine, you know, easier and cheaper and faster. So that's why the classification makes sense. That's why the whole, par the whole divide and conquer approach is reasonable and plausible and feasible. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's a, it's a really well thought out and, and good approach to the problem. Um, are there any animal models that are particularly inter interesting to you um, related to aging? When I was a kid, um, there's two animals that really got my thinking started on aging. So possums, you know, they live, uh, they're only marsupial in North America, really common in North Carolina where I grew up. And they only live to be about a year old. Um, you know, maximum lifespan is about two years old. And then, um, the Eastern box turtle, which was a really common turtle we found on the road all the time, they demonstrate negligible senescence. And like this, this kind of, um, dichotomy I always saw, I was really interesting to me. Are, are there any other animals that you think, okay, this is, this is a really good model. We should look at more closely than we currently are to understand aging. Yeah. So, right. So, uh, let me give a fairly elaborate answer to this question because it's a really great, interesting question. I don't get asked it very often. Um, so, First of all, let's talk about opossums. So they turn out to have a rather important um, uh, place in the in the history of the field of the biology of aging, because way back in the early 1990s, there was this guy. His name is Steve Orstad. He's now a professor in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, he was a young guy, and he'd done a few other things with his life, including being a lion tamer. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, um, basically, he knew a lot about a lot of different animals. He was fundamentally a zoologist, and he decided to go into aging. And the thing he decided to do first was to test a, a theory of the evolution of aging that explains not how um, particular species live longer than other species, but rather why they live longer, where the evolution, the selective pressure comes from that actually causes this to happen. So the theory in question was basically that extrinsic mortality drives it. So extrinsic mortality simply means all of the causes of death that a species may experience that do not have to do with how old they are, how long ago they were born. All right. Uh, so, of course, a big one, in fact, the big one is predation. Right. Right. And so Steve had this brilliant idea. He said, all right, so um, we don't necessarily need to look at different species because that's difficult because, you know, different species uh, you know, have been separated from each other you know, phylogenetically for a long time. It would be marvelous if we could look at populations that are the same species. In other words, they've actually been interbreeding until recently. 
but you want to have them having not been interbreeding really recently. And so what he did was this extraordinarily clever thing. He looked at opossums, not actually in North Carolina, in Virginia, but close enough, right? Um, and he realized that this was an opportunity because of the outer banks, the islands that exist off the coast of Virginia. Now, these islands have not been islands for very long. They have been cut off from the mainland by tidal forces, okay? Um, and some of them are quite big. He focused on one particular island, which is just the right size to be able to support a population of opossums, but not to be able to support a population of the carnivores that normally eat opossums. They no, the, the higher up the food chain you are, the, the larger a, an area you basically need in order to sustain a stable population. So this one island, it's called Sapelo Island, S-A-P-E-L-O, with just the right size. It's got a bunch of opossums and they've got no predators. Whereas on the mainland where you come from, they've got masses of predators. And they're very, not very intelligent. So they really don't live very long. So he said, well, okay, evolutionary theory predicts that the opossums on this island are going to live longer. It's only been an island for something like 5,000 years. So it's a few thousand generations of opossums, right? That's a blink of an eye in evolution. Okay. But he said, well, okay, maybe this is fast enough. Maybe um, we'll see something. And he sure as hell did. These opossums live more than one and a half times longer than um, the opossums on the mainland. So this showed us that even in a natural environment, if you just remove the major source of extrinsic mortality, namely predation, then the response in terms of the ability to age more slowly is insanely fast. The only prior work that had been done in this area was in fruit flies. It had been done about 10 years earlier by a professor who's now in, um, uh, in California, in Irvine, uh, when he was doing his PhD in the UK. And he um, showed the same thing, but he showed it with artificial selection, very artificial. He basically said, OK, you're not allowed to reproduce until you're already old. So he kind of imposed a very different kind of pressure. So it's a bit more, it was a lot more artificial. So this is a really important thing. So, so what I'm, the reason I tell this story in such detail is not just because it's a good story and involves lion taming and so on, but also because, um, because it shows you that you can learn a lot about aging by studying short-lived species, not just long-lived ones. But coming back to the question you were really asking, which is the long-lived species, yes, we can learn things, but exactly how much we can learn is actually really tricky because almost always, when a species is long-lived, it's long-lived for a reason that does not extrapolate to humans. So in the case of tortoises, for example, yes, they live a long time. The, reason, the evolutionary reason is exactly the one I just described, that you know, it's hard to eat a tortoise because it's got a shell, <laughs> right? Right. So it lives a long time. Um, but how they do it, you know, what's going on in their cells, in their organs that allows them to accumulate damage more slowly. That's tricky to work out. And when you look, unfortunately, what you find out is that the main reason is that they are cold blooded. In other words, they just like they don't have to breathe so much as you and I do. 
So, uh, and breathing is really bad for you. This is a really important <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm not saying breathing, breathing pollutants, right? I'm saying breathing right. oxygen. Um, you know, it's really bad for you because the process of using oxygen in cells, which is used to extract energy from nutrients, that's a really hairy process. It's evolved exactly once a few, a few billion years ago. Um, and it creates toxic, toxic side products uh, called free radicals, which damage DNA and proteins and everything. So, yeah, I mean, you know, breathing is definitely very bad for you. Indeed. It's the single worst thing you're doing for your longevity right now. <laughs> but, unfortunately, but unfortunately, it's a bit non-negotiable. And furthermore, um, you know, the amount of it that you do is fairly non-negotiable because we're warm-blooded and we have to do more of it than what tortoises do. So that's the main reason why tortoises live longer, why sharks live longer. It's even the main reason why whales live longer, even though they are warm-blooded, because there's a surface-to-volume ratio thing. The amount of heat you need to make um, depends on how rapidly you're losing heat through your surface, through your skin, and the bigger you are, the less that's going to happen. Right, so, um, so, that, so again, it's the same deal. It's the same deal for a very famous small mammal called the naked mole rat, which is also heavily studied by people who want to understand aging. Um, they live naturally underground in the Kalahari Desert in, in Southern Africa. And, you know, back down there, it is warm all the time. The, the, the temperature change between night and day is only about one degree Celsius, right? So they don't have to do much, much burning energy to actually, um, to keep warm. Um, now th saying all of that, all of that. There are some things we can learn. So naked mole rats are actually a great example because they have this insanely good defense against cancer that we only very slightly understand at this point. And that's a really important thing to understand. We might be able, we might just be able to emulate it. Similarly, birds. So birds tend to actually breathe harder than we do. They've got a lot of energy involved in, you know, flapping really. And um, that, you know, that is quite remarkable because birds are small. You know, small birds, well, birds and rodents that are the same size typically have a factor of 10 difference in how long they live. So they're doing something really right. And sure enough, it turns out to be that they have evolved a way to make fewer of these byproducts I mentioned, these things called free radicals, when they breathe now, per unit oxygen consumption. Um, how they do it is still very much unclear. What, how we could exploit and piggyback on what they do is even more unclear. So yeah, long story is, um, there are definitely things we would love to understand better about how certain species live a long time. We shouldn't get our hopes up too much with regard to how to use that information to live longer ourselves, there might be a few isolated examples where we do find out information that is medically relevant, but it'll only be a few. Got it. And I love that anecdote about the, the possums on island in the Outer Banks. It, it's a really good reminder that there are pathways in mammals that could be switched on and, and, uh, and extend lifespan. Like it, it is very possible in some sense, which is, a, which is really cool to hear in that natural environment as well. Uh, Aubrey, are there any therapies currently available, you know, caloric restriction, metformin, anything that you've found that, uh, would be a good idea to start thinking about now. So these are, first of all, these are definitely not things that I would have because they are being studied by other people, but also the reason why they're not being studied by me and by my, by my people, by my team and by this community 
is because they are only to give us a very small amount of additional healthy life. Now, I'm certainly not saying that means they're useless, not at all. I, first of all, I believe that even a very small amount of additional healthy life is, is well worth having. And of course, the thing about calorie restriction, I indeed these drugs that trick the body into thinking it's in a calorie restricted state when it isn't like rapamycin or metformin or resveratrol, you know, these things, um, they already exist. So, you know, right. that's, a, that's a big advantage of the things that we're working on that don't already exist. Um, uh, so that's great. But yeah, I don't work on those things because I'm interested in the real McCoy. I'm interested in actually getting to stuff that can truly eliminate damage from the body. But essentially, calorie restriction and, also, and, and likewise all of these drugs, what they do is they slow down somewhat the rate at which the body generates more damage. They don't get rid of pre-existing damage. Um, so inevitably, that obviously means that they have a lesser effect especially on people who only start the procedure or the medicine when they're older. Um, but more than that, it's really important thing to understand is that long lived species like humans get far, far less benefit from calorie restriction than short lived species like mice or rats do. Um, and this is actually, again, something that is not surprising. Uh, it, it's an immediate prediction of evolutionary theory. I don't need to go through the details, really, but it essentially revolves around the fact that long famines don't happen very often. Short famines happen often enough for evolution to pay attention to them. Long famines don't. So you end up getting a much lesser effect in long-lived species. Um, but as I say, not a zero effect, or at least we, we presume it's not zero. So, um, yeah, absolutely. But I don't work on it myself. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, if someone wants to help, you know, and I know this is very personal to each person, but, but what, what are some of the, some good things you would suggest, some reading materials you suggest if someone wants to get involved with aging, you know, is it donating? Is it, you know, working on research directly? And again, this is all like, uh, dependent on each person's skill set. Well, what are some good ways to help? Right. Well, so yes, I mean, of course, you've really kind of answered the question yourself. You just said it depends who you are. It depends on your skill set, depends on your circumstances. So um, absolutely, you know, the wealthier you are, the more difference you can make. I do, however, want to emphasize very strongly that every dollar counts. So, you know, the more we can build up our grassroots funding, the better. Plenty of our money, sensible proportion of our money comes from small donations. So do not think you can't make a difference just because you're not wealthy. Second thing is, of course, advocacy. And this is something I always like to point out when I'm only slightly tongue in cheek here, um, that the poorer you are, the more people you know who are wealthier than you. So, you know, <laughs> grassroots advocacy, going out and actually talking to your friends and your family and your colleagues and saying, listen, this is the world's most important crusade. Get with the, you know, get with it. Um, understand that this is coming and the sooner it comes, the better. And the more support they have, the better. Um, or for that matter, even the less opposition they have, the better. Because a lot of this is just getting it into people's heads that this is not a sin. You know, that, right. that, um, that, you know that, 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 that they should not be opposing this. We have, I, I will tell you, this is a fact. We have at least three 
people who are close friends of ours and who have never given us a penny, even though they really, really are interested and supportive of all of this verbally. Why haven't they done so? Because their spouses won't let them. Oh, man. Kidding, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, so getting, getting the opponents to be less vigorous opponents is just as important as getting the supporters to be more vigorous supporters. Um, and then, of course, there's the wider advocacy that's doing the kind of thing that you're doing right now, you know, getting the word out on a podcast or any kind of other kind of media, right? Um, it doesn't have to be me that you interview. It used to have to be me because I was the only person out there saying <laughs> the right thing. Right? But it doesn't, it's not that way anymore. We are one of the other enormous pieces of progress that has happened over the past few years is that other people have come along who are, you know, sophisticated enough and knowledgeable enough to be giving the right answers to all the questions, but they don't parrot me. They say it in their own words and they say it in their own style. You know, I think I'm pretty damn good at what I do. I bloody ought to be by now because I've been doing it long enough. But the fact is, I only do what I do. And there are certain audiences with whom my message resonates and there are other audiences with whom it doesn't because I'm not speaking in the kind of language that they like to hear. So, you know, I, I still remember the first time I saw Liz Parrish up on stage. She got into this field starting in 2013 when she came to one of, my conference, one of the conferences I organised and she learned the field pretty fast and she started getting out there on stage and on camera and you know she's the kind of person who can who can pull heartstrings in a manner that i will not be able to do if i live to a thousand <laughs> she is unbelievable i was in tears and um you know it's not the, she's not the only one by any means but I, she, she springs to mind always because it was so it was so moving for me um, but yeah, I mean, people like so Keith Comito is a great person. He runs something called LEAF, the Life Extension Advocacy Foundation, based in New York, and he's fantastic on stage and on camera. And so now, you know, we've got this thing that I was always praying for: this diversity of messaging. And the more we have of that, the better. That's excellent. That's really excellent. Well, Aubrey, I really want to thank you. Just you know. You could have done a lot of things with your life. You could have gone into investment banking and made, I'm sure, a lot more money than you do working on aging, you know, all kinds of different things. But you cho chose to work on a problem that, you know, no one else thought was really important. And I think that's a, uh, at the time, and I think that's a really valuable thing. And I'm, I'm really excited to see where the field goes in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Well, I will very much hope that you won't have to think that long, you know, that <laughs> 15 years, the, the job will be more or less done. That's the plan. That's excellent. All right. Well, Aubrey, um, where can people find you? Where should we send people if they want to you know, yeah, find really, your work? Really just the best place to go is sense.org, our website. Uh, I imagine you'll put it in the show notes. Um, but yeah, S for September, E for Elephant, N for November, S for September, dot L-R-G. Um, it is written for everybody. You know, we have material there for absolute experts all the way through to complete novices and of course lots of news about what we're doing what other people are doing you know the usual kind of stuff where i'm speaking um and uh you know there's a contact form so if questions you have then please you know just write to us there we are very well behaved about answering those and of course there's a nice big friendly donate button awesome well thank you so much aubrey for coming on today i really appreciate it it's my pleasure well thank you for having me Well, that's our show for today. 
I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.